Well, good morning, Northside. I want to invite you to join us Wednesday night for the first installment of four mini-courses this year. We're going to be working our way through some movements of the spiritual life, and the first one is soaking in the Word, and this Wednesday I want to talk to you about where the Bible came from. A lot of people have questions about that, and they really need to be considered and answered as much as possible. So again, in the centrum this Wednesday, we'll be talking that over. Well, it's Labor Day weekend. It's time for a celebration of the American worker of whom we have many in this room. It's the end of summer. It's about the time we begin school. Actually, I'm still trying to get used to the fact that school's already been going on for a little bit for a while here as I've made this move to southern Indiana. But maybe more than anything right now, we're thinking about a holiday tomorrow, right? (laughs) We're thinking about barbecue and a little bit of rest. My plan is to put a 12-hour smoke on my first Hoosier brisket. (laughs) And I just love the smell of hickory, don't you? And I'll be smelling like hickory myself for about a week after I put that smoke on the brisket tomorrow. So I've come to ask you this morning, among other things, how do you plan to rest? I also have come to ask you, may I have permission to speak freely? We started this series five weeks ago. We're talking about how we pray, how we talk to God from where we are, not where we think we're supposed to be. And I need that permission to speak to you freely this morning. And here's what I want to say about that. Some of us don't know how to rest. I'm not saying we don't know how to rest very well. Some of us just don't know how to rest. We work hard. We don't rest enough. We may have forgotten the Sabbath. Believe you me, I'm preaching to myself this morning when I say that. And listen, it's not that there's anything wrong with work. God gave us work. God Himself worked for six days and only then rested. So the bulk of it is work. It's work that gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And I hope that on this Labor Day, we can pause to reflect upon that reality. But still, still, we need to rest. So what are we going to do about this? good friend of mine used to say to me, if it ain't broke, break it. (laughs) And you say, that's crazy. Everything's running smoothly. The production lines are what they're supposed to do. It's going well. Why would I dare mess with that? But deep down, there might be a current that tells another story a current of weariness in our bones, of sleep deprivation, of hurry sickness, of unsettled fears and currents of doubt. And so we do what we do. We get busy. We get going. And we hope that all the worries and fears and doubts will just dissipate. They'll just disappear. They'll go away. And you and I both know That's not the way it works. 
We often hear folks say that the antidote is don't just sit there, do something. That's kind of the American way. Listen up. I've come to sing a different song today. No, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to tell it. Don't worry. It's this. Don't just do something. Sit there. I want you to let that seep in this morning as we consider a song of ascent. Wasn't that a beautiful song the worship team just sang for us? The highlands and the heartache. It's a song of ascent. Israel had her songs of ascent. On the great feast days in ancient Israel, the people would scale that holy mountain, Mount Zion, to go to the temple of the Lord and worship and celebrate their life in Him. And the song they just sang in our company is that kind of song. In the highlands, but also in the heartaches, we find God present in all of these places. The psalm under consideration this morning is this one. Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not lifted up. I do not concern myself with great matters are things that are too wonderful for me. But I have quieted and stilled my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child with its mother, so my soul is within me. Oh Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. I'm wondering, what do you hear in this text? Do you hear the arrogance of this proud heart? Do you hear these haughty eyes? Or maybe do you hear a letting go, a deep desire welling up within for contentment? What do you hear in this text? What do you see in this text? Do you see lofty ideas? Do you see things that are too great for me? Or do you see a little child resting squarely in her mother's arms, in his mother's arms? Will you please allow yourself to see that child this morning? Maybe to see that child in you this morning. Perhaps a distant memory of how it was at another time in your life. Back when you were a little kid, carefree, skipping around in that tall May grass on a beautiful sunlit day, not worried about chiggers, you know, ticks. No, we picked that up later in life. You remember? That's the contentment of which this psalm speaks. Do you hear the hope at the end of this text? Will you allow yourself again today against all the problems that you face in this life to hear hope once again? I think that's what the psalmist envisions for us today. I don't know the particular historical circumstances of this psalm. Usually, I don't. The Psalms sometimes, they're poetry. They're kind of vague at times. It may have been a personal circumstance. It may have been something in the national life 
of Israel. What I do know is that this psalm is tied to a memory of David. Now, there's a full life for you. David, that shepherd boy turned king. David carrying around the brute head of a Philistine giant named Goliath when others in Israel's army would not step up to slay that giant. David is the poet. David is the musician who was summoned to calm the nerves of King Saul. David is a man who lived life to the edge, and sometimes he crossed over the edge. There is also David the adulterer, and David the murderer, and there is David the father whose children he ached for, whose children suffered deeply. I don't know what else I could say about David's life but to say that his was a very stormy life. I wonder, have you ever wondered what it would be like to weather a storm? I mean, a hurricane. Dorian is bearing down this morning as we speak on the northern Bahamas, a Cat 4 hurricane. We need to be praying for those people. In fact, I'm just going to shut it down right now and offer that prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you please protect the people of the Bahamas and others who are in the path of Dorian today. We offer this prayer through Jesus in the power of your Spirit. Amen. There's something about the winds of agitation that surround the eye of a storm. Many years ago, my wife and I went with 10 students. We were teaching at Lincoln Christian University down to New Orleans, six months to the day after Katrina slammed into the coast there. Nothing could have prepared us for what we saw. The electricity was still out six months after Katrina came in. And so people trying to negotiate these lights, stop lights, go lights, we just looking at each other, trying to decide who was going to go next. It was pitch dark. I remember pulling up to the place where I thought we were going to be uh, sleeping that way. And it was all barricaded and locked up. There was a dim light on the second floor of a house in front of us. So I went over about a block, and a construction worker came racing out of his RV to say to me, don't go over there. But you know what's going over there. Those people have guns. They've been looted for the last six months. It was a war zone that we stepped into. The devastation of a storm can be enormous. You and I are familiar with those winds of agitation, the ones that show up in this text. A proud heart, the text says, eyes that are lifted up, focused on things that are too great for me. You know those winds. Winds of anger and envy and disappointment and presumption and a longing for greatness. And there is no contentment in that. And unfortunately, that's where way too many of us live too much of our lives. But there is real contentment in the eye 
of the storm. It's a safe spot. I grew up a few minutes from Galveston Island. That's my home on the North Texas coast. We weathered hurricanes when I was a kid. I still hear the stories today from my brothers about storms that have come through and how when the eye of the storm passes over the town I grew up in, people who had been in their homes with their doors safely locked and their windows covered with boards walk out into the streets to survey the damage. That's a real thing. And there's light and there's stillness. And it seems safe for a moment until that ominous eastern eye wall of the hurricane shows up and you better scurry back into your house at that point. Church, what if I were to tell you this morning that there is a marvelous stillness at the heart of everything. That that is what Psalm 131 is about. That amidst the scores of things on your checklists for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, there exists a quiet center, a reliable place of refuge and release, a place of slowing, a place where you can listen to hear the voice of your Maker say to you, you are my beloved children. I care for you deeply. Be still and know that I am God. What if I were to tell you that? Would you believe me? <laughs> or would you think that preacher has lost his mind? My daughter called us the other day on FaceTime. She was crying. I was curious to know what was going on. She has a 14-month-old boy who is about as sweet as they come. He's a big kid. She had put him to bed that evening. And where normally Stephen goes to sleep pretty quickly, he's very calm and contented. On this night, he was screaming and howling and throwing things. And so Carice went back into the room and picked him up and she sat down and she held that boy in her arms and then something happened that just never happens with Stephen. For 30 minutes solid, he put his head on her chest and snuggled with his mom. I've come to say this to you more this morning. There is, there exists a marvelous stillness at the heart of everything. He just needed to be held. <laughs> he just wanted to snuggle with his mom. I remember years ago going to a, a professional meeting, listening to all kinds of presentations, examining hundreds of books, buying way too many books, sometimes concerning myself, as the psalmist says here in Psalm 131, with things that are too great for me. I, I want to solve the world's problems. I want to fix it all, you know? So I buy another book. I'm a recovering professor. This was the agenda for modern people. We can make a better world if we just put our minds to it, if we just try hard enough. You know, there's nothing wrong with that because God always intended that we steward this earth, that we care for it, that people 
created in his image, care for what he made. That, I think, in part, is what it means to be created in his image. We ourselves are creators. We're the ones who do watercolors. We're the ones who write novels. We're the ones who build beautiful buildings and take care of each other with medicine. God made us to create, to come alongside him for that purpose. Nothing wrong with that. But about 400 years ago, a lot of folks decided that they could make a better world without God. And so they walked away from him and they walked into themselves and they began to vacate those great cathedrals in Europe, those incredible houses of worship in Europe. And it set the tone for a tough season for the church and the world, one from which many people are still recovering, and some have given up. But you and I keep coming back to this place because we believe it doesn't have to be that way. Did you notice that the text said, I have calmed and quieted my soul? It's an active verb. I have a choice to make. And while I cannot quiet the souls of other people or the hurricane force winds of the modern world, I can quiet my own soul if I'm reading this text correctly. That is the challenge. That is the opportunity of Psalm 131. The year was 1995. I had been assigned a sermon text to preach in chapel. And I couldn't get my arms around that text. I just couldn't get my heart or my head in it. And I did a kind of radical thing for me. I just left my office on a Thursday afternoon and drove about 30 minutes away to the Weldon Springs State Recreation uh, Area there in the heart of Illinois. And there on a cold March day with a stiff breeze in my face, I sat on a hill overlooking a 29-acre lake and got my soul back. There's something about walking into the wilderness that affords us that opportunity. That Friday afternoon, I took the first 24 students who signed up to uh, sit on the college's minibus with me over to that park and turn them loose for a couple of hours of journaling and prayer, and we sang together. And to a person, they said, I needed this. I really needed this. And for nearly 10 years on Thursday afternoons during the school year, Weldon became my favorite classroom. I was jogging down a path Weldon one Thursday afternoon when one of my students hopped out from behind a bush. <laughs> he needed to talk. <laughs> and so I dropped my agenda that afternoon and spent it with Jeff. And that became a season of teaching in the wilderness because I decided I'm going to start taking my students with me to the park. One senior said, I don't know how to pray. Teach me how to pray. So we talked about that. A group of girls wanted to know some things about boys. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do what I can. I'll do what I can. It's a hard subject. I have a lot of blinders. 
The fourth commandment reads, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. I think of Sabbath as Israel's eye in the middle of the storm, her great moment with God, her stopping. That's what this word means. Shabbat means I stop. Remember how we put it earlier. Don't just do something. Sit there. The very notion of Sabbath frees us from enslavement to this material world. The Sabbath helps us recover eternity right here in the midst of time. We get a taste of heaven. We get a taste of God when we stop. Six days a week, we live with the demands of things, good things, machinery, electronics, you name it. On the seventh, we stop, or at least they did. Israel stopped. I know the church, not all of the church, observes the Sabbath, but I have this sneaking suspicion that we might be better off if on a Thursday or a Saturday or a Sunday we just stopped, we rested, like God Himself stopped to rest after those six days of creating. My friend and colleague here, Brian Combs, put it so well. I've come to think that the fourth commandment on Sabbath is the most difficult and most urgent of the commandments in our society because it summons us to intent and conduct that defies the most elemental requirements of a commodity-propelled society. And I love the way Abraham Heschel put it when he wrote, we have fallen victims to the work of our hands. It's as if the forces that we have conquered have now conquered us. It's time to stop. Years ago, in my father's Sunday school class, a woman named Hilda spoke up, a very simple woman. Hilda spoke up. She said, I didn't want my kids to have more than I had. I wanted my kids to have what I had. I wanted my kids to have the presence of their mother and father, of their siblings, right here in our home. She said it was never about trying to get more stuff to improve our standard of living, and hers was a very modest standard of living. Always, she said, it was about the presence of the people we love. Well, the psalmist wouldn't leave this theme of letting go without an illustration, one that came home to me in a very powerful way. Uh, many years ago, when my oldest, Luke, was being weaned, I remember the day. His mother, Miriam, holding Luke and that boy kicking and screaming at the top of his lungs and red in the face. He didn't understand what was happening. <laughs> it seemed like, I suppose it seemed like his world might have been coming to an end. I don't know. I just have to guess what was going on in his world at that point. But I'm here to tell you, 20 minutes into this, the kicking and the screaming and the red in the face, all that stuff stopped, just cold. It stopped. And Luke was held by his mother in those same arms that had cradled him to this point in his life, his mother continued 
to hold him. And it looked to me by appearances he had become content. He may have just been so weary and exhausted from the crying that he was ready to rest. But I believe in my heart of hearts what may have been going on was a point of recognition and familiarity. Same arms, same sweet voice, same person who's loved me into life. And suddenly Psalm 131 began to make sense to me like a weaned child with his mother. So is my soul within me. Do you remember the words of Jesus? Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, he said. Do you suppose maybe that Jesus had Psalm 131 in mind when he said, you got to be like a little kid. You got to be like a little child to get in, to get into this kingdom. And is it possible that all of our kicking and screaming, church, our justified protests, our angry feelings, Lord, why don't people listen to what I say? Or Lord, has anyone noticed what we've been through this year? Or Lord, why aren't people reliable? What did I ever do to deserve this? I'm asking, is it possible that all of the endless nagging questions actually keep us away? from the kingdom of God, away from God's steady embrace when we allow all that to take over in our lives. Yes, we have learned in this series, we have permission to speak freely to God. That's what the whole series has been about. And I hope that you're praying from where you are, not where you think you're supposed to be. But once you have had your say with your Maker, it's time to be still. It's time to get quiet. It's time to listen to what He has to say in response to all of your pleading. Because at some point in life, it becomes necessary to surrender to the love of God, to rest, to really rest, to let go of everything that hinders us from trusting Him entirely, to quit allowing our emotions to take over and control us, to sign on to the dotted line of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, to risk trusting God rather than cowering in fear or bolting in anger, to let go of our compulsive need to control all the outcomes as if we really could, to put our phones down for a day. Maybe to do a media fast for a week. Am I really saying these things? To allow that other, quieter, deeper, eternal voice come flowing in to our cluttered worlds, speaking there the enduring love of God to us. For me, this is what the prayer that I prayed back with you on May the 18th, the prayer of Shah de Fuku is all about. The prayer I'd like for us to pray together in a few moments later in the service today. And every day we're prone to want to run the show for God. It's a hard prayer. And I keep, I keep praying my way into this prayer. 
hoping that I will believe every line of this prayer. This prayer, by the way, will show up later on this week in the church newsletter, The Loop. You can see it electronically there. But here it is. Once again, Lord, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you do, I thank you. I'm ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this. Into your hands I commend my soul. And I offer it to you with all the love of my heart because I love you, Lord. And so I want to give myself to you fully in complete surrender, without reservation, and with complete confidence because you are my Father. Remember the mantra today. Don't just do something. Sit there. This is how the psalmist places his hope in the Lord. This is how we allow ourselves to be held contentedly like little kids in God's sturdy arms. I want to leave a parting image with you. I've used a lot of family illustrations today because this is very much an intimate and family kind of text. When our daughter, Carice, was about 10 years old, she went down to the nursing home one afternoon to visit her great aunt Stella, who at that point in time was 97 years old. Stella was an honored, decorated, very much respected professor. She taught down at Pikeville College. Now I understand the University of Pikeville in Kentucky. And people just loved her. She lived life to the full. She traveled all the continents of this world but Antarctica. And I understand why she didn't go there. She had a story for every occasion. This respected, now tiny, frail woman When I went down to the nursing home, she was practically sitting in the lap of my 10-year-old daughter. You've got to imagine that, see that in your mind's eye. This university professor sitting in the lap of a grade school girl. Later on that day, I was relating this experience to my wife, Miriam, And Miriam gently said to me, Neil, everyone needs to be held. Not a person in this room exempt. Every one of us needs to be held. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child with her mother, so is my soul within me. Stella, almost all the great battles of her life over, loved Jesus deeply, content to be held that day by a young girl. Carice had her arms draped around her to enjoy near the end of her full and good life what we've called that marvelous stillness at the heart 
of everything. Oh, Israel. Oh, church. Put your hope in the Lord. This is how we rest, church. By putting our hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen. This morning, we're going to close it out a little bit differently. You know, we've been putting some questions on the screen for you to consider. But this morning, I just decided it was kind of a last-minute thing not to put the questions up, but to invite you just to rest where you're seated in silence for a few moments, to cease your striving, to let go of your agenda, to forget for a moment what comes after worship today, to center your attention entirely on God, your Maker, upon His unending love for you, to let you enjoy a moment with Him as He holds you in His sturdy embrace. So I invite you to close your eyes and let God hold you in a moment of silence. Just savor it. Just savor it this morning. And now I want to invite you to read this prayer of abandonment with me. I realize it's a hard prayer, and some of the lines, we're going to buck against those, but we keep praying it until we pray our way into it. I invite you to pray it with me. Lord, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love in my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so want to give myself to you fully, without reservation. For you are my Father. Amen.